Okay, well, I'm going to do a Ask Me Anything podcast this time around. Now, as some of you know, I often set out to do these and then answer one question for 20 minutes or more and don't get very far. And um, I'm afraid that's what's going to happen this time around. I'll answer a few questions uh, in a rather long-winded way and then hopefully do some rapid-fire answers and, and get through many of your questions. I must say, I, I really appreciate the response I get when I, whenever I go out for questions. I get hundreds. I, you know, honestly, I can't even read all of your questions. But I've read many of them, and um, I just, you know, it's, it's very hard to choose. I'll just work through them. But um, I also have to do a little housekeeping in this podcast, so I, I, I will start with that. First, I'm recording this podcast on New Year's Day, so Happy New Year, everyone. And um, I ended the year in contentious fashion on Twitter. I don't know why I use Twitter. If I treated Twitter the way I treat Facebook, I would never have any of these entanglements that I so often discuss with you. I would never notice what was being said about me or uh, what sort of skirmishes I was uh, being dragged into. And therefore, I'd never be tempted to respond. So it's a um, perhaps deserves some rethinking whether it's worth my paying attention. But as I'll tell you in a moment, at least two of my upcoming guests are coming on the podcast simply because of some Twitter incident. And so that's um, it's certainly interesting. It, it keeps me forever uncertain whether I should be um, using this technology. But in any case, as for my upcoming guests, I have um, actually three of the guests coming up are coming up entirely as a result of Twitter. So you could figure out whether it's a blessing or a curse at this point. I'll soon be speaking with Jocko Willink, the Navy SEAL who was recently interviewed on Tim Ferriss's podcast first and then Joe Rogan's. And I encourage you to listen to both those interviews. That's literally five hours of interview with Jocko. He is just a fascinating guy, and I, I certainly would have always loved to have him on my podcast. And it, it occurred to me to reach out to him, except, you know, I just heard literally five hours of him on two of my friends' podcasts, and it just seemed I wasn't quite sure what there would be to add to that conversation. And Jocko now has his own podcast. At Joe Rogan's insistence, he, he started a podcast immediately and is banging those out, and the guy is great. But you know, on Twitter, we got thrown together, and people were encouraging him to come on my podcast, and, and he said he'd be happy to do it. And so here we are. So I'll be speaking to him in the coming weeks, and I look forward to that. And I'll try to find a fundamentally new line through the conversation so that we can get to some of his insight and experience that he didn't have a chance to share with Tim and Joe, and that should be fun. I'll also be speaking with uh, Scotty Reitz, who's a um, a former SWAT operator. He was the, the lead weapons and tactics instructor for LAPD SWAT and uh, now trains people in the use of firearms. And I, I'm going to talk to Scotty about uh, violence and self-defense and firearms and gun control and also what it's like to be a cop and the misuses of force that we've all seen of late from cops. And just to, just to get into all of those politically sensitive but... Um, interesting areas. And Scotty, I think, will be a, a great person to do it with. Jocko and Scotty will come close together, and, and that will be, we can call that Violence Week on the Waking Up podcast. I'll also be speaking with uh, Miriam Namazi, the um, 
ex-Muslim reformer based in the UK who many of you probably know. You've, you've probably seen video of her. I've, I've circulated video of her before. And uh, this was also Twitter-born. There was an incident of what I considered friendly fire where she went after me for um, uh, what I think is a misunderstanding of my views on profiling. And uh, you know, I, I've always thought Mariam was great, but she more or less slammed me as a bigot as far as I could tell on Twitter. And so uh, I reached out to her and she's agreed to come on the podcast and we'll try to um, rectify that situation. I, you know, Whether or not we succeed, Mariam's is a voice you all should hear and um, I will bring her to you. Uh, there was also another Twitter-born collision, not so friendly, fire, uh, with someone who I'd never heard of, a, a young Muslim, probably soon-to-be lawyer. He's a um, getting his JD at Yale. Uh, he's a writer who wrote a truly withering book review uh, in Salon about my book with Majid. And uh, he hated the book, um, seems to hate Majid, but especially hates me. And um, hatred really isn't too strong a word. People were hurling this review at me on Twitter. As you know, I don't tend to read Salon. So um, anyway, I read it. Needless to say, I don't agree with it. Uh, but I um, reached out to, I don't know if his name is pronounced Omer Omar. I will find out from him. Let's call him Omer. That's how it's spelled. I reached out to him on Twitter and he agreed to come on the podcast. And so I anticipate that being a difficult conversation. And my interest is, as I've said before, in trying to figure out how to have hard conversations, how to start very far apart in a conversation and figure out how to converge, or at the very least, agree to disagree on specific points in a way that is not entangled with personal hostility and misunderstanding. And that, admittedly, is a challenge that not everyone is up to. And, and so it's, you know, I, I tried it with Noam Chomsky, and I will, I will be trying it with other people. My conversation with, with Majid was also an example of that, and I didn't know how it was going to turn out, and it became hugely productive. So um, I'm going to be running similar psychological and conversational experiments on my podcast, and um, Omer will be one. Also, I'll be speaking with Jonathan Haidt, who many of you know. He's a very influential psychologist uh, with whom I've disagreed in the past and in a none-too-friendly way, I might add. And, and so that is a, another instance of my reaching out to somebody who has taken some very hard shots at me in the past, and I've returned fire, and we're going to see if we can have a civil and useful conversation on important topics. That'll be coming sometime in, in February, I think. Uh, and also, I'll, I will have uh, Steve Pinker on at some point, and I have a few other guests lined up. So there will be interesting conversations coming your way. I feel the need to apologize once again for the level of congestion I'm bringing to the mic now. I have uh, two young girls, each of whom seems to be um, striving to win the Patient Zero Award for bringing new colds into the world. I don't know if they're out there uh, playing with ducks in a pond or where they're getting these viruses, but they're bringing them to daddy. Uh, so I bring them to you in a substandard audio performance. So bear with me there. So many of you noticed various Twitter controversies and wanted me to address them. Here's the first with Fareed Zakaria, the CNN and Washington Post journalist. He sent out a tweet about a week ago endorsing a truly terrible piece of Islamist propaganda. 
And so the tweet read, My book of the week, Who Speaks for Islam? What a Billion Muslims Really Think. That's, that's the title of the book. And then he calls it An Essential Voice of Reason. Now, th- this book was written by John Esposito and Dahlia Mogahed. And uh, apologies again, I don't know exactly how to pronounce Dahlia's last name. I will say Mogahed. Uh, it's probably not right. Esposito runs a, a Middle East Studies Center at Georgetown. And Mogahed works for Gallup, the, the famous polling organization that published this book that Zakaria was recommending. So I tweeted in response, Witness the capture of academia, Esposito, polling, Gallup, and journalism, Zakaria, by rank Islamism. Now, many people took this tweet to be a sign that I had gone off the deep end by alleging some kind of stealth Islamist takeover of our institutions. Uh, well, there is an attempted Islamist takeover of our institutions, and it's not especially stealthy. But to be clear, I wasn't claiming that Zakaria is an Islamist. Rather, I think he's probably been deceived by Islamist misinformation, of which there's an endless supply. And there is no question he's spreading such misinformation by pushing this book. And nor do I think Esposito is an Islamist, because to my knowledge, he's not even a Muslim. But everything I've seen him publish about Islam has been, if not a lie, a half-truth. He's someone who I've called a Muslim apologist in the past, and his center at Georgetown is funded with tens of millions of dollars by the Saudi government. It's the Prince Al-Walid bin Talal Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding. And its function appears to be to whitewash Islam in general, and the obscenity of Saudi Wahhabi Islam in particular. Now, I was frankly unfamiliar with Mogahed. She's the executive director of the Gallup Center for Muslim Studies, I just happened to have seen her on Meet the Press a few days before, sitting beside my friend Azra Nomani, the eminently rational journalist and Muslim reformer. And more or less every word out of Mogahed's mouth was, again, a lie or a half-truth that seemed calculated to deceive a secular audience. She was saying things like the members of ISIS aren't religious and that they have no theological or popular support and there's no correlation between being a religious Muslim and being a jihadist. In fact, the correlation is negative, according to Mogahed. You're more likely to be a jihadist if you're not a devout Muslim. These statements are completely dishonest. I did a little digging on Mogahed, and from what I can tell, it seems that she has some affinity for, if not direct connection to, the Muslim Brotherhood, as do many people who claim to be Muslim moderates in our society. And it's very annoying that only people on the political right, and many of whom are dogmatic Christians or Jews, seem to have the time or the temperament to point this out. A group like the Council on American-Islamic Relations, CARE, which seems to be the most influential Muslim civil rights organization, was a direct offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood and has been supportive of terrorist organizations like Hamas. Is it connected with these organizations now? I don't know. Do its members even know? It could be like Scientology, where you don't know how crazy the organization is until you're deep in it. But I can tell you one thing for certain. This is an organization that systematically lies about Islam and demonizes its critics and tries to make life as difficult as possible for people like Ayan Hirsi Ali. And again, this group is treated like the Muslim ACLU by the press. It's insane. And both Esposito and Mogahed are darlings of this organization, as is Glenn Greenwald, as you know. So whatever her connections, Mogahed practices some of the worst forms of Islamist obscurantism and identity politics. She describes jihadism as a purely political phenomenon that has no connection to religious doctrine or belief, 
And needless to say, it's always arising out of that vast reservoir of, quote, legitimate grievances that Muslims have against the West. And she's also an Obama appointee. She sits on the president's advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. And she's one of the people who had a hand in writing President Obama's famous Cairo speech. Again, I'm painfully aware that despairing over facts like these makes one sound like a right-wing crackpot. So to be clear, I am an Obama supporter. I voted for him both times. I will almost certainly vote for Hillary Clinton in the fall because I, I don't see any other conceivable choice, though I have to hold my nose over her obscurantism on this issue in particular. But it isn't crazy to worry that Islamists are gaming our system because they quite obviously are. Now, again, I don't know for sure whether Mogahed is an Islamist. She wears the hijab and says some very dishonest things about Islam in general and Sharia law in particular. Still, she may just be a useful idiot like her colleague John Esposito. The line here can be difficult to find, and it may not even be important to find it. It's the ideas and their influence, rather than the people conveying the ideas, that I'm worried about. This is also not to say that ideologically motivated people, even Islamists, couldn't produce an honest poll or a book based on such a poll. And I certainly wasn't discounting the contents of the book because its authors strike me as nefarious and dishonest people. For instance, let's, let's just flip this around. If I were to produce a poll of religious public opinion, perhaps hiring an organization like Gallup or Pew to run it, here are two things about which I am certain. I am certain I could do this honestly and make every effort to produce a poll that was well-designed and scientifically valid. I am also certain that religious people and their apologists would reject its findings, whatever they happen to be, because of my history as a critic of religion. I have made no secret of my views on religious faith. I think religion, I think faith-based religion, is dangerous and divisive bullshit. And I think Islam is the worst of the lot. So it would be totally understandable and also wrong for a religious person to reject a Gallup poll of religious opinion that I was associated with. So to be clear, I am not doing that in reverse. Okay, when Esposito and Mogahed's book came out in 2007, I bought it and I read it. And I found it so obviously misleading as to not even be worth discussing. But now Fareed Zakaria is pushing it eight years later, okay, as his pick of the week and as a, quote, essential voice of reason. And it should be disturbing that Zakaria can't see the flaws in this book, because again, they are so obvious. So what's wrong with the book? Well, first, it purports to be an unprecedented and thoroughly scientific poll of Muslim public opinion, but the authors don't show any data. And the ways they discuss their data, along with the kinds of questions they thought to ask in their poll, and the questions they declined to ask, prove that they were after a certain result, which was to make Muslim opinion look totally benign. They want you to believe that Islam is just like any other religion, and that Muslims worldwide are just like any other group of religious people. Now, the book isn't entirely filled with lies. Okay, the authors admit, for instance, that the imagined link between poverty and lack of education and terrorism, or support for terrorism, is a myth. Okay, they admit that the most radicalized people in the Muslim world tend to be middle class and educated. In fact, according to Esposito and Mogahed, the politically radicalized tend to be more satisfied with their financial situations and believe their standard of living is improving and are more optimistic about their futures in general than the so-called moderates are. 
which proves that the remedies that many secular liberals imagine exist for extremism in the Muslim world, that is, more education and economic opportunity, are not remedies at all. As I've been saying for years, I don't know how many more engineers have to fly planes into buildings or devote their lives to waging jihad in other ways for us to get it through our heads that the lack of education and economic opportunity isn't the cause of Muslim extremism. But even in making this concession, Esposito and Moghead reveal that getting Islam off the hook is their goal. Their point is to say that the backgrounds of terrorists are so diverse as to fully exonerate religion. There's the usual tendentious nonsense about how the 9-11 hijackers went to strip clubs, for instance, which according to Esposito and Moghead proves that they weren't really religious. Majid and I dealt with this lie in our book. They also point out that most jihadists aren't graduates from madrasas, and this is a point that Scott Atran makes all the time, as though this suggests a lack of connection between sincere religious belief in Islamic doctrine and jihadism. They even go so far as to intimate that the academic backgrounds of prominent jihadists suggest that almost anything could make one a jihadist. So, they, so bin Laden, for instance, was, quote, trained in management, economics, and engineering. It's like, who knows which of these streams of information could have radicalized him. Okay. This is pure obscurantism. But this isn't the worst part of the book. Okay. The worst part comes down to the questions that were asked, as well as those that weren't asked, and the way the results are discussed. So one of the most egregious examples can be found in the question that Esposito and Moga had used to differentiate what they call radicals from, quote, moderates. They report that only 7% of Muslims worldwide consider the 9-11 attacks to be, quote, completely justified. And then they go on to say, therefore, that 9 in 10, 93%, quote, believe the attacks were not justified, and they call these people moderates. Incidentally, the press ran with this, reporting that 93% of Muslims, or 9 in 10, the world over, are, quote, moderate. Well, if you know anything about anything, you should be feeling a little queasy at this point. I took one look at this line that only 7% of Muslims consider the 9-11 attacks to be, quote, completely justified. So 9 in 10 are moderates. And I knew I was being lied to by sinister people or being misled by useful idiots. Again, I can't claim to know which of these categories Esposito and Mogahed fall into. Okay, so the first thing to point out is that even if true, even if this most sanguine of interpretations of this pseudo-data is true, 7% of Muslims believing that the atrocities of 9-11 were completely justified is a problem that should not be minimized. Okay, the, the authors equate this with 91 million people. Okay, their book came out in 2007. Today, it's more like 112 million people. Recall what we're talking about here. Okay, we're talking about the intentional murder of 3,000 innocent non-combatants at a time that preceded our involvement in Afghanistan and Iraq. We're talking about 112 million people who think that burning thousands of people alive in the Twin Towers was completely justified. That's already a huge reservoir of murderous lunacy. Okay, but of course, the real problem is that the 7% figure is totally misleading, and intentionally so. We can tell from the wording, quote, completely justified, that Gallup used a scale in its poll from 1 to 5 or 1 to 7, where completely justified and completely unjustified were at the tail ends. There was almost certainly a choice of somewhat justified, or mostly justified, or both, that many people picked. And there was certainly a choice of don't know, or no opinion. Think of all those people who couldn't say that the attacks of 9-11 
were completely unjustified. Okay, but said, rather, they were mostly justified, or somewhat justified, or said they didn't know. Okay, these people are being described as moderates. And there's another problem with using this particular question as the dividing line between moderates and extremists. As many of you know, and as Esposito and Mogahed surely know, vast numbers of Muslims think that Muslims had nothing to do with the attacks of 9-11 because there were 4,000 Jews who didn't show up to work that day. Millions of Muslims believe that the Mossad and the CIA conspired to bring down the World Trade Center as a pretext to invade Muslim lands. In fact, one poll indicated that 16% of Americans believe something like this. It is the whole 9-11 truth movement. Right? So using this question in this way, rigged the game. Okay, and again, Esposito and Moghead almost certainly know this. And they know that if they had asked questions about apostasy or blasphemy or the rights of women and homosexuals and polytheists, or whether infidels deserve to spend eternity in hellfire, the results of their polling would have been appalling. Okay, and every poll of Muslim public opinion that has been run on these questions produces appalling results. And again, it literally took me five seconds to see the problem here. Why didn't Fareed Zakaria see it? He is a journalist who covers these issues. He doesn't want to see it. Even this fictional 7% is talked about in the book in a way that is obviously tendentious and misleading. They say, for instance, that, quote, If the 7%, 91 million of the politically radicalized, continue to feel politically dominated, occupied, and disrespected, the West will have little, if any, chance of changing their minds, end quote. Again, the burden is upon the West to behave better and show respect to people who think the attacks of September 11th were, quote, completely justified. And again, remember, these attacks came before we invaded Afghanistan and Iraq. Okay. Justified for what? Ask yourself that. I, I should say I invited Dalia Mogahed on the podcast after a little sniping on Twitter. And um, she declined, but I would have been happy to speak with her. I've seen her promulgate what I now call the narrative narrative. And basically everyone is doing this now from President Obama on down. And it's understandable in some ways, but it's, it's also scary. So pay attention here. The, the idea I'm about to describe is almost unrivaled in its strangeness. And yet those hearing it for the first time to say nothing of those who espouse it, never seem to notice that something out of the ordinary is being said. Now, you've heard this idea before, and I, I will venture to guess that you did not notice how strange and indeed terrifying a claim was being made. The idea is this. In fighting ISIS, or in resisting the spread of Islamic theocracy generally, we must at all costs avoid, quote, confirming the narrative of Islamic extremists. The fear is that any focus on the religion of Islam or its adherents, profiling at TSA, intelligence gathering at mosques, or merely acknowledging that we are at war not with generic terrorism, but with Islamic terrorism, will drive many more Muslims to support the jihadists. Now, think about what is actually being alleged here. Think about the underlying pessimism, if not paranoia, of this claim. Let's use an analogy. Okay, let's say you're a bald white man. And unluckily for you, 
there happens to be a global insurgency of neo-Nazi skinheads terrorizing a hundred countries. Okay, most white men are perfectly peaceful, of course. But this insurgency has grown so captivating to a minority of them that no city on earth is truly safe. Bald white men have blown up planes and buses and burned embassies and even murdered innocent children by the hundreds. And we have spent trillions of dollars trying to contain the damage. Many of these bald white men are seeking to acquire nuclear materials so that they can detonate dirty bombs or even atomic ones in the capitals of Europe and the United States. And to make matters worse, many of these men are avowedly suicidal and therefore cannot be deterred. Now imagine hearing presidents and prime ministers and newspaper columnists and even your fellow bald white men express the fear that merely acknowledging the whiteness and baldness of neo-Nazi skinheads would so oppress and alienate other bald white men that they too would begin murdering innocent people. Imagine being told that at all costs we must not confirm the narrative of the neo-Nazis by acknowledging that white bald men emblazoned with swastikas are of greater interest from a security point of view than elderly Hawaiian women. Okay, This is the situation we're in. You might be somewhat confused by the racial characteristics of this analogy. Obviously, Islam is not a race. But most people appear to believe that by honestly describing the link between the doctrine of Islam and jihadism, and therefore admitting that Islam is of special concern in a way that Anglicanism and Mormonism aren't, that we will provoke otherwise peaceful Muslims to such a degree that they will become jihadists or support them. Now, this is either one of the most pessimistic and uncharitable things ever said about a community, or it's true. Okay? And if it's the former, we should stop saying it. And if it's the latter, we should be talking about nothing else and obliging Muslims to talk about nothing else. Where are these Muslims who are just like you and me, in valuing freedom of speech and secular tolerance and scientific rationality, who want their daughters to grow up to be fully self-actualized members of society, who aren't afraid of cartoons, who think gays should be free to marry, but who, if subjected to an extra glance at the airport or a visit from the FBI at their mosque, will be, quote, radicalized and helplessly driven to support ISIS. They're just like you and me now, but say the wrong thing about Islam on television, and they'll start supporting a group that decapitates journalists and aid workers, rapes women by the tens of thousands, and throws gays from rooftops. That is what is being claimed, and it is absolutely shocking. Doubly so because no one is admitting or seeming to even notice what a shocking claim it is. And again, I don't know what is true here. It could be a totally reasonable fear, or it could be pure paranoia. But I'm pretty sure the difference matters. So that's all I have to say about that particular book and contretemps on Twitter. Again, it is highly inconvenient that worrying about the spread of Islamist ideology and the deception that covers its spread, immediately puts people in mind of the Red Scare and Joseph McCarthy and right-wing conspiracy theories. You, you have to follow the plot here. I am always talking about the necessity 
that freedom of speech and freedom of thought be safeguarded. You should be free to think and say whatever you want to say. And the people who are trying to write blasphemy laws, whether actually or effectively, in the way they're stigmatizing the criticism of Islam as tantamount to bigotry and xenophobia and even racism, these people are undermining the freedom of speech and the freedom of thought. There is no analogy to the Red Scare here. But it is, I just confess, highly inconvenient that the New York Times doesn't do a proper analysis of where the sympathies of people like Mogahed and Esposito are. And they don't talk about the corrupting influence of Saudi money, money from a regime that is, is theologically indistinguishable from ISIS, flooding our academic institutions and funding mosques worldwide and supplying them with literature that demonizes infidels and polytheists and, needless to say, Jews. So this is not conspiracy theory time. This is just the nefarious work of Islamists that is in plain view for anyone who wants to see it. But unfortunately, most of the people who want to see it are on the right wing. So you do a Google search on someone like Dahlia Mogahed and you're, you're immediately dumped onto you know, Front Page Magazine and, and the Weekly Standard and other conservative publications. That's because the liberal publications are not doing their job. And many of them are doing the other job of obscurantism. And you have a place like Salon that gets this wrong almost as a matter of principle. Okay, so on to more of your actual questions. What progress have you made toward becoming vegetarian or vegan? So this question arises uh, from my podcast. I think it was the second podcast I did with Paul Bloom, where we sort of just stumbled into an a intervention I performed on both of us around the topic of, of the ethics of eating meat. Uh, we, one of us asked the other, what would be on your short list for things that will just mortify our descendants on our behalf? You know, the, the way we look back on Thomas Jefferson and we're just aghast that he couldn't see the wrongness of slavery. We have this supremely ethical and intelligent person who still couldn't see what an abomination slavery was. Uh, so what analogous blind spots do we have? And what will our descendants be scandalized by when they look back on us? And you know, on, on both of our short lists was the horror show of factory farming. And neither of us could defend it. Both of us participated in this machinery of death. And um, we both admitted that it's only because it's out of sight and out of mind that we were able to do so. And neither of us could defend eating meat under these circumstances, and uh, nor could we defend delegating the acquisition of meat to others in this way. So, so we, we did kind of stumble into a, um, an, an intervention of sorts. Then I threw Paul under the bus by saying, well, I'm willing to make a change in my diet, and I don't know what kind of moral monster you are that you, uh, you aren't, but in any case, that was a, a, a fun conversation, and at that point, I asked vegetarian and vegan listeners to send me resources and um, uh, help me idiot-proof the process of getting off of meat. And I made that appeal because I had been a vegetarian for six years at one point and became anemic and just decided it was not a, uh, a healthy diet for me. So yes, yeah, so I, I have a little to report, but not 
enough that I, I want to go into it in any depth, but I can say that since that conversation, I have been a vegetarian, and now that's, I think that's about four months ago, and um, I did some blood work recently, and strangely, or perhaps not so strangely, my uh, my lipid profile, my cholesterol and triglycerides have gotten worse on a vegetarian diet, and I think that's largely because, not not because I'm eating more dairy and eggs, and yes, I'm aware of the ethical concerns around dairy and eggs, but because uh, I'm probably eating more carbohydrates. And so, you know, there's the bread and the pasta and the rice and all the rest that's tweaking my blood sugar, and that has a unhappy effect on on lipids. I'm still working with this. I'm still a vegetarian. I am an aspiring vegan. I'll keep trying to, to find my way through this science experiment without making food preparation and eating a new religion for myself or the center of my life. I have to be realistic about what I can do here, and I don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good. So um, at the very least, I, uh, I'm convinced about the ethical problem of eating meat. The eggs I buy claim to be impeccable ethically. Every chicken has something like 108 square feet of pasture to um, run on. And I am aware that that doesn't answer the concern of what happens to the male chicks born in their hatcheries. But I'm still not convinced that I can be a healthy vegan at this point. But uh, I'm going to try to be convinced. So again, this is a slow unwinding of my carnivore lifestyle. But in any case, I've, I've made the, the big change, which is I no longer eat meat, chicken, or fish. I suppose you could even make the case that eating fish given our current system, is more ethical than continuing to eat dairy and eggs. I would be interested to know um, how you vegans and vegetarians view that. I did have one idea for a short book or a long blog article where I could go through the comparative neuroanatomy of various species, as well as what we know about the, the likely basis of consciousness and pain and suffering in various animal brains, and try to make some intelligent ranking of the likely harm done at each stage. So is it, you know, is it worse to kill a cow than a fish? Is it worse to kill a pig than a cow? Can you really eat oysters and other bivalves without any concern that they may be suffering? You know, this might be interesting to look at at some point. Take a fair amount of time to do it right, but um, in any case, that's at the back of my mind to look at. Next question. This, this one's from uh, Faisal Saeed al-Mutar, who many of you know is the ex-Muslim Iraqi reformer and um, a voice of reason. He's, uh, he was recently on Dave Rubin's show and uh, gave a great interview there. And uh, he, was, he was one of the people I consulted on my book with Majid, and he gave some very helpful notes. He's, he's great. Anyway, he asks, if the Islamic reformation slash modernization movement doesn't succeed, what do you think should be the alternative? And that's a uh, an extraordinarily difficult question. I, I think um, I can't answer it. I don't think there is an alternative. If Islamic reform slash modernization doesn't succeed, we will have a continuous source of conflict with free speech and tolerance of diversity and gender equality and a respect for science. I think it will work at some point because it will become so painful and untenable that it will just have to work. Now, I don't know how much blood will be spilled or how many pendulum swings toward reactionary governments 
we'll see in Europe and even in the United States. I don't know how many Donald Trump campaigns we'll have to endure. Again, I'm not especially worried that there's going to be a Trump presidency, but it's conceivable, and it's conceivable because of this, but it has to succeed. Uh, Or at the very least, Islam has to become like Christianity in, in the United States. That's a problem that's big enough for me to have written a short book about it, Letter to a Christian Nation, but it's comparatively a tolerable problem. Once we get there, once the Middle East is like the Bible Belt, then we'll have the luxury of of trying to fine-tune things and wondering what the far future might look like. Okay, another question. This is a a longish question that I got by email, and it it contains a... uh, a criticism, but I thought it was it was good, so I'll read the whole thing. Uh, here's my question with some context and setup. Do you think your reliance on hypotheticals and thought experiments has become a hindrance to making headway in discourse on important issues, in particular the threat of Islamic terrorism? Generally speaking, how big a role should thought experiments and hypotheticals play in discussing key issues? It seems that lately you've given several gifts to your detractors, namely the statement about Ben Carson. While I understand your position in stating that you'd support him over Chomsky on the point of terrorism only, I still think this was a disastrous tactical error that didn't need to be made. Your point could have been made in any number of ways that didn't involve taking an absurd position, voting for Carson under any metric, on a situation that will never actually happen, Chomsky running for president. Imagine a person that had not heard of your work until seeing that statement. Do you think they'd be more or less likely to dig deeper and fully explore the nuance of your views or write you off as a crackpot? If the goal is to win the war of ideas, it seems like tactics like this might be doing you more harm than good. The non-starter with Chomsky and the defensive torture in certain circumstances are other areas where relying on thought experiments and hypotheticals did not seem to win many supporters. The name is uh, Jason Teifel. Uh, Thank you, Jason. Well, I agree. I, I, I think it's probably in the specific instances you cite, counterproductive. And perhaps I should be more disciplined in how I screen for those statements, which um, wind up being counterproductive or easily used to um, mislead people about my views. The Ben Carson thing is very obvious, though I couched it with so many caveats and so much context that one really had to be totally malicious to spread the meme that I support Ben Carson for president. But of course, I have critics who are just that malicious. Someone like Max Blumenthal did just that. The the issue is when people are that malicious in their use of ellipses, they can defame you with any statement. But I, I take your point. They may not notice that you were talking about anything until you make a statement of the sort I made about Carson. Uh, And the net result of that one certainly was not helpful. Uh, On the question of thought experiments, I notice now I offered one at the top and talking about the narrative narrative. They do serve the purpose, if the analogy one is drawing is correct, of clarifying people's thinking and getting down to first principles. Using a thought experiment or an analogy, however surprising, can break the spell for people in a way that just talking more and more about the complex details of events in the world can't. So yeah, I would be reluctant to say that thought experiments and hypotheticals shouldn't be used, but I think more care is needed in resorting to them, perhaps, or at least justifying their use. And you know, I didn't think that kind of care was needed in 
the case of talking with someone like Chomsky, because obviously he's a celebrated academic who has who understands what is going on when someone resorts to a hypothetical in order to get at first principles. He's also someone who uh, seems inclined to deliberately miss the point when he thinks it will serve his side of the argument. I have to factor in the price I pay for being so on my guard in conversations like the one I was having with Douglas Murray that I wind up just not having useful conversations and not branching out into areas that are ethically interesting and consequential where my views may prompt someone to think differently in important ways than they thought before. You know, I I find it thrilling when someone raises a point that I find I'm uncomfortable with and I'm being led helplessly in the direction of something that I find destabilizing to my cherished opinions. And I can't see any errors that being made, and yet I don't like where I'm being taken. I find that absolutely thrilling. I find those moments some of the best moments in intellectual life. And I've been told by many of you that I managed to do that for you. So I would be reluctant to stop doing that. I'd be reluctant to speak more like a politician than I do. But I would be the first to admit that I may have caused myself more headaches than I should have by not being more careful than I've been. Uh, So I don't do a lot of censoring of what I think or how I say things, but um, increasingly I find that I do some because, again, it's yeah. if I didn't care whether I was misrepresented, it would be a lot easier. And um, getting off of Twitter would be one way not to care because I seem to only see these things on Twitter. But um, as I said as well, I I also see some useful things on Twitter, and some of the upcoming conversations I will have on this podcast are a result of of what I've seen there. So there may may be no perfect solution. I'll just keep trying to find my way as I eat nothing but vegetables. Next question. This is a, a similar one, actually. Obviously, it's your, quote, controversial views that gain the most notoriety. However, the importance of an idea and how much attention it receives are only loosely related. Some ideas, arguably such as your stance on profiling, may turn out to be relatively unimportant, regardless of how reasonable or well-reasoned it is. Worse, it could be actively unhelpful. Such topics can be so explosive, and your position may not condense to tweet length, that it can easily be used by opponents to denigrate you. In this regard, sharing such ideas could detract from more critical points. In what way should the imagined repercussions affect what you decide to publicly share? If you believe something to be true... Would it be moral to withhold it? In this respect, is there such a thing as a noble lie of omission? Are there ideas you've decided against sharing? What are they? That's interesting. Uh, Share them now. And are there views of yours that you believe don't get enough attention? Um, And this is from Jordan. Thank you, Jordan. Uh, Again, yeah, I think there... And I once wrote an article, I believe it was entitled Why I'd Rather Not Speak About Torture, uh, on my blog, and I said there or somewhere, that I once had an epiphany that, you know, not everything worth saying is worth saying oneself. And that is still true. I still think that's true. And I I notice certain people abide by this precept much better than I do and have commensurately easy lives as a result. I would put someone like Steve Pinker in this category. This is not true of somebody like Richard Dawkins, who gets down in the trenches in the same way that I do. Part of this is, is the ideas themselves, right? So that there are topics like profiling, for instance, where I just think it's, it's ethically 
both interesting and important to figure out what we think on this topic. Uh, I mean, get this wrong in any significant way, and people will die. People by what? The hundreds? The thousands? It's truly important that we figure this out. So, yeah, you know, I'm reluctant to say that I shouldn't touch those topics. But in hindsight, I can say that, yeah, some of them have been just more trouble than they're worth. And as I think I've said on this podcast uh, at least once, that, you know, I I tore up the the best book contract I've ever had simply because I thought the topic was going to be more trouble than it's worth. The working title of the book was Letters to a Young Liberal, and I was going to go after political correctness in all its forms and talk about not only things like Islamophobia, but talk about violence in general and wealth and power and gender and essentially create a multi-front war for myself on every topic that um, the regressive left, as we now call them, following Majid, has stifled conversation. And I pitched that book and uh, sold it and was then tasked to write it. And literally two days in to that contract, I decided this was a terrible mistake. And in the interest of sanity, I tore up the contract. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you what convinced me of this, and, and you can be the judge of, of whether this makes sense. But so the first thing that happened, this was back when Ferguson was kicking off. And I realized that had I written that this book already, and it um, did touch issues of policing and you know identity politics around race and all of the other really difficult and consequential material in that area, if I had written this book and it had just come out, I then, in the act of promoting it, would have had to have been the white guy on CNN talking to Cornell West about police procedure and police brutality. And did I want to be that person? I decided, no, I didn't. You know, I don't want to be... I would have been thrown into contexts where it would be impossible to make sense on, the again, these very important issues without being demonized by, a, you know, in the same way that I have been demonized by the left, but now by a, just a factor of 10. And the other thing that convinced me, which um, was also just, just a surprise, but Sarah Silverman, who I don't know, but who I greatly admire, uh, I think she's fantastic, noticed my blog post on, on the Gaza conflict entitled, Why Don't I Criticize Israel? Question mark. She noticed this this article and liked it clearly and retweeted it to her five million fans, saying something like, you know, please read this with an open mind. And this was like three months or, or more after I had written that article. And my first reaction was not to be happy that someone I greatly admire liked what I had written and sent it out to her huge audience. No, my immediate reaction was, why did she have to do that? Right? Like, what? What a what a fucking headache, you know, for me and for her, right? And that I knew that she was going to start getting my hate mail, which I didn't want her to have to get. And I was just happy to not have to talk about Gaza and Israel again, because it's just so painful. And again, it's made painful by just the sheer idiocy that comes your way. It's not made painful by the, the serious criticisms and counterpoints, which are there to be made. You know, it's not made painful by 
honest conversation on the topic, it's made painful by the demagoguery of people like Glenn Greenwald and all the rest. Um, and it's, you know, so my reaction to that, you know, I look at her Twitter feed and she immediately gets, you know, you know, I used to think you were funny, but now I see you're just a Zionist kike. It's just all of it, right? How much more of that do I want in my life uh, when I could be having conversations of the sort that I just had with David Deutsch, for instance? And so, yeah, so I tore up that book contract and totally happy that I did, though I think that book should exist in some form. Uh, the other factor here is that I have a problem with bullies. And um, when I see someone being a bully, whether it's toward me or toward someone else, I find it difficult not to respond. Uh, many of you saw a recent collision between me and uh, Nassim Taleb, the author of The Black Swan and Antifragile and other books, which I actually wasn't going to talk about. But Taleb is someone I've gone after before because he's attacked me uh, as a charlatan, all in capital letters. Uh, and I just noticed him attacking Steve Pinker, as, again, as a charlatan, in all in capital letters, and as a journo, which he means, by which he means journalist. So I wasn't aware that he'd been going after Pinker, but, uh, but when I saw him do that, I had to push back. And I should say, I, uh, when I pushed back, some of you noticed, some of you worried that I was pushing back against him unfairly and being a little mean-spirited in the process. You should just know the history here and um, judge for yourself. I, again, I wasn't going to talk about this, but people, this is how the sausage gets made. I know many of you love this guy and think he's a genius. I can assure you none among you are as impressed with his intelligence as he is. This guy is just insufferable, and he's a bully, and he's um, most of the time doesn't make any sense and never knows it. I've actually never witnessed a marriage of incompetence and confidence so fully and grotesquely consummated in the mind of a person with a public platform. This is the most arrogant person I have ever had the misfortune of meeting. I had one lunch with him at a conference we both attended, and then he insinuated himself into a debate that I had been scheduled to have with an already vastly overcrowded debate at uh, Ciudad de las Ideas in Mexico, uh, the, the Mexican version of TED. And that debate can be viewed in its entirety on YouTube. This was a debate where we had, um, it was me and uh, Hitch and Dan Dennett on one side and Dinesh D'Souza and Rabbi Botiak and I've forgotten who else on, on the other side. But then Nassim Taleb insinuated himself into the debate. He, he was aghast that he had not been invited to participate. And though he had another talk scheduled at the conference, he really must be included in this debate because he had something so valuable to share. Uh, and he was included because just can't resist such an 800-pound gorilla. Now, I should say that I met him first. And when you meet him, you quickly discover that he radiates a sense of grievance from his pores in a way that few people do. It's kind of like a preternatural force of negative charisma. And he can convey his contempt for everyone at the table, just even in the way he says, you know, pass the salt. He's so convinced that his genius has not been appropriately lauded that he, um, he finds some way to communicate this in almost every interaction. He is a child in a man's body. Uh, and the mismatch 
between his estimation of himself and the quality of his utterances is so complete and so mortifying to witness in person that you're just you just find you're you're jumping out of your skin, and uh, you can see what he brought to the stage at Ciudad. It was a performance that I think will stand the test of time for its incoherence and the confidence and censure of others on the stage with which that incoherence was espoused. It's really an amazing performance. And so whenever Taleb starts bullying someone, the first time this happened, he just attacked me out of the blue. I, can't, I don't know what provoked it, but I just started seeing on Twitter that he was calling me a charlatan. And, uh, and now he's doing the same to Steve Pinker. So whenever he's done this, I think he's done this twice that I've noticed, all I've done is share this video in its entirety. I'm not greenwalding him. Uh, greenwalding, by the way, is a word now that's taking off on Twitter, which I love. You'll know what it means in context. I was not greenwalding him. I was not taking some partial and misleading snippet of his speech and defaming him that way. No, I'm spreading the entire content, his, his entire whatever it is. It's in three segments. I spread the whole thing on Twitter and, and say, yes, you know, please recognize what a genius we're dealing with, right? You judge for yourself whether this guy makes any sense at all, whether his animus towards science is compelling. And uh, the first time around, the first time I did this, he went berserk and he said, it just shows you what a coward you are, that you will, you will deal with YouTube videos, but you won't deal with my published work, which of course is brilliant. And then he hurled some paper at me, which I read, also found terrible, and tweeted to my audience in, I thought, an entirely fair way. I said, Nassim Taleb thinks it's very important that you all read this paper. And I spread it that way. So I spread the content, which is, in fact, representative of what the guy is up to on these topics. In any case, he went berserk on Twitter. He may still be going berserk as I speak these words. And um, he called me a pseudoscientist and demanded to know what scientific papers I published and his discussion of these topics is so unprofessional that, um, again, I, I wouldn't engage with it, but for the fact that he is this tremendous bully. He's a very rich and, in some circles, well-regarded person. He's not, I'm not punching down when I deal with this guy. Inexplicably, there are people like Daniel Kahneman, who really is an 800-pound gorilla. Uh, we'll share the stage with him. And you can see him occasionally bail him out when he begins to become uh, incoherent. But for the life of me, I, I can't see why anyone takes him seriously beyond the few memorable ideas he's had, like the notion of a black swan, which may in fact be the black swan of um, Taleb's career, which is to say the one instance in which he made sense. Um, in his attack on me, Taleb brought up a few things which, again, in a totally incoherent way, uh, which many of you may find interesting or relevant, and, and I think I've tried to sort this out on, in previous podcasts, but see if you can follow this. Uh, there, there's something here that's important and about which many people are confused. Uh, he claims I'm not a scientist, that I'm just a journalist, and um, he very snidely demanded to know whether I had ever published any uh, neuroscientific papers you know, by, by what measure am I a neuroscientist? And then, so I sent him the two fMRI papers I had published, 
and he got back with what only two, you've only published two scientific papers with six different co-authors how does that make you a neuroscientist so there's an instance of a goalpost moving there he asked to see the papers which he assumed didn't exist i sent him two papers and he rejected them as uh, being only two and having co-authors uh, he does, he's not, doesn't seem to know understand anything about the conventions of publishing within science in general and neuroscience in particular. But um, then I responded, well, surely you, of all people in the scene, are not claiming that scientific thought can only be confined to academic journals. And then he got back saying that most of his best papers had not been published, but they were, they were rigorous. So now he's saying that it doesn't really matter if you publish in academic journals, but for some reason his papers are more rigorous. His unpublished papers are more rigorous than mine. And this thing is made even more incoherent because he's attacking Steve Pinker in the, precisely the same terms. Again, charlatan in all capital letters, journo, as a journalist. And Steve has, I don't know, 150, 200 academic papers. It doesn't make any sense. And then he, he I think, tried to accuse me of hypocrisy for attacking Reza Aslan for lying about his academic credentials, uh, as though I was a, a stickler for academic credentials. No, so l- let me try to clear up confusion on this point because there, there really is a, a real possibility of confusion here and, and I think it's important to sort out. I don't care about credentials. I care about people's arguments and their evidence. I certainly don't care about whether something is published in an academic journal or in a book or on a blog. Again, I care about ideas and I live my own life from that point of view. Now, my PhD is in neuroscience. I have always considered myself a philosopher first. Now that's going to gall many academic philosophers who do care about credentials and think that my lack of a PhD in philosophy disqualifies me to consider myself a philosopher. Well, sorry. Most of what I do is philosophy. It's moral philosophy, it's meta-ethics, it's the philosophy of mind, and these are the kinds of questions that interests me. And I got a PhD in neuroscience because I want to be able to do that from the most scientifically informed place. And I'm still doing some research in neuroscience. I've collaborated on a paper that's a follow-up to my first two on belief, and that's in process now. And so I'm still doing neuroimaging work, but it is not what I'm doing mostly. And I don't have an appointment at a university. I'm mostly writing and doing podcasts like this, right? So I write books, I write blog posts, I write articles, I do podcasts, and I attempt to spread my ideas in, the, in a forum that's most effective for the spread of ideas. I'm often asked to submit papers to academic journals, and I always decline. Why do I decline? Because that is effectively burying my work, right? Why would I write a paper for a philosophy journal, when I can write an article on my blog that will be read by literally a thousand times the number of readers. There are certain things that can only be published first in a proper academic journal, like, like you know, an fMRI experiment should be published in some relevant journal. But generally speaking, it would be crazy for me to write for academic journals. There's no reason to do it. And you know, so like the last conversation I had with David Deutsch, he and I could have approached some 
scientific or philosophical journal and decided to have a conversation about the foundations of science and the nature of explanation and the prospects of artificial intelligence posing a problem for humanity and you know the, the other topics we talked about. And I'm sure we could have gotten it published. And I'm sure little more than 500 people would have ever seen it in that context. And it would have taken much more work to do, right? Here we just got on Skype and more or less covered the same ground and all of you heard it. And most of you found it very interesting and, and useful, as I did, because you know David is an extremely deep thinker. But this podcast isn't peer-reviewed, right? Uh, feel free to review it yourself. It's peer-reviewed in terms of whether the ideas survive their collision with the minds of listeners like yourself. So I don't care about where people publish and... I certainly don't care about people's credentials. The only reason why I criticized Reza Aslan about his is because he's obviously exaggerating them and he's denigrating the credentials of everyone else. Okay, There's no one who has been more attached to the credentials of his opponents and more complimentary of his own than Reza Aslan. Every time he opens his mouth, he reminds you he has a PhD. Unfortunately, the subject he has that degree in keeps changing and never seems to accurately describe the one he actually holds. So I was criticizing Reza Aslan as a liar and a hypocrite. And as you know, I have problems with lying. You know, this is one of my hobby horses. I think lying is the worst thing you can do interpersonally, professionally. It's, it's just, it is kryptonite. I'm consoled by the fact that some of my worst enemies are rather avid liars, right? These, their lies eventually will bring them down. I am um, reasonably confident of that. So I hope that clarifies my collision with um, Taleb. I, um, I guess the final point to make there is, I, as many of you know, the difference, the distinction between science and philosophy or the rest of our intellectual life for me is not hard and fast. And I think viewing it as hard and fast is a genuine intellectual error of some consequence. So depending on the context, I call myself a neuroscientist, uh, mostly because that is the, the, the title of the degree that I have, and some of my interests can be narrowly defined as neuroscientific, and so, certainly some of my writing can be. You know, individual chapters in some of my books are pure neuroscience. But I don't think these distinctions matter, and happily, I'm not in a position to have to keep titling myself. And I don't meet many people like Nassim Taleb who care or pretend to care about what I call myself. And when I sit down with people like Jocko Willink next week and talk about violence, am I a neuroscientist? Probably not. Am I a philosopher? Maybe. Probably not. I, my intellectual interests aren't easily pigeonholed. But I certainly won't cop to being a journalist, because that is not how I operate. And if you notice how I conduct my interviews, I'm not merely asking questions of my guests. I'm trying to have a conversation with them. And very often, I'm taking up as much space as they are. And that's on purpose. It's a conversation. It's not a normal interview, because I want to talk to these people. And I presume that if you're listening to this podcast, you want to hear me talk to these people. 
Apologies if all of this sounds kind of weirdly defensive, but again, I've just come out of the, the war zone of social media. Next question. You place a lot of value on truth as an ideal, yet isn't lifting truth to such a lofty position sometimes itself irrational? Imagine a man who is happily married. Unbeknownst to him, a decade ago, his wife cheated on him. She's not unfaithful now, nor is she ever likely to be unfaithful again. The man learning this information would result in his being traumatized and destroy the marriage, leaving both of them miserable. The children would likewise be terribly affected by the resulting divorce. Is there any value gained by the man learning this truth, outside of truth as an ideal to strive for in and of itself? Wouldn't everyone involved be happier for this man's ignorance of this aspect of reality? Well, uh, granted, there are some borderline conditions where it seems plausible to talk about truths that are that one is better off not knowing. But um, that's not the same question as whether or not one should lie to conceal these truths. For instance, I, I distinguish in my book Lying between keeping secrets and telling lies. And if you have to tell a lie to keep a secret, well then, uh, generally speaking, I think the secret is not worth keeping. It uh, intrinsically separates you from the people you care about. And um, the lie is usually told out of fear for what the consequences would be if those closest to you knew the truth about what you had done or what you thought. Uh, so insofar as one wants to live a life of real intimacy and, and relative transparency, then I think keeping significant secrets and lying so as to safeguard them is not the way to do it. The more interesting question is how could one become the sort of person who could know the truth, even even truth of the, of the sort described in that question, and be okay with it? I mean, is it really written somehow in the fabric of the universe or in the wiring plan of the human brain that it's impossible to overcome an infidelity, especially if, the, if it has no relevance in the present and reflected, in some sense, the, the actions of a different self years before? I don't think so. But again, you know, there, there are people for whom this is setting the bar way too high. And if you know that about yourself, or you know that about someone close to you, well then, keeping a secret or lying or avoiding certain types of information can become a kind of matter of self-defense or, or a defense of another's sanity. And I'm not saying that those situations never exist, but generally speaking, I want to know what has happened in my life. I want to know whether those closest to me have been deceiving me. And the remedy for their past deceptions, it seems to me, is not continuing to deceive me on those specific points. So I would want that information. And I, I actually can't think of an example in my own life of wishing I hadn't known something. Are you guys constantly experiencing this? You find out something unpleasant about someone you know, and considering the situation in its totality, you wish you didn't know that thing. You wish you were in the dark about it. You find out someone is only pretending to like you, but behind your back they say terrible things about you. When you learn that, you wish you didn't know that about them. Is that your intuition? It's never been mine, so... In any case, I, I admit that it's possible, but it, it's just not the common case. And my default is to say the truth is almost always better 
than a lie, though there, there is certainly some scope for keeping secrets. I discuss these cases more in my book, Lying, if any of you are interested. And it just so happens I received another question just now on a similar topic. Question from an ex-Muslim reader. Okay, I'm a 21-year-old ex-Muslim and have been in the closet since I was 15, when I first lost my faith. Recently, I read a blurb by Rebecca Goldstein for a book called Creating Change Through Humanism by Roy Speckart. And if you don't know who Rebecca Goldstein is, she's a, a novelist, philosopher, uh, and also happens to be the, uh, the better half of Steve Pinker, and quite, quite a wonderful woman, which so eloquently put down in words everything that has been troubling me. She writes about how debilitating it can be to lead a double life and how the cognitive dissonance can eventually lead to a loss of one's sense of integrity. At the end, she asks the following question, which resonates deeply with many ex-Muslims, including myself. Is it possible to be a person of integrity while maintaining a radical bifurcation between one's outer and inner lives? And if that inner life should value rationality, free inquiry, and the right of all of us to flourish to our fullest, then how can you keep silent about the conclusions to which your rational free inquiry has brought you? End quote. And the, and the questioner continues, <clears throat> I'll give you a short background. I live in a country where apostasy is punishable by death. Okay, just you listeners, just take a moment to imagine what that's like. Understand that's a reality of um, many people who are also listening to this podcast. It's a reality of many people who also have to listen to the crazy denials of the problem of Islamism from all the usual suspects. The writer continues, And I realize that coming out in such a circumstance is not an option at all. But I was born to loving parents, the cherry-picking, peace-loving kind, and will quite likely have an opportunity to move out of here after completing my education. My apostasy will have only social costs, so I am luckier than some Muslim women who often endure physical violence from their family. However, my relative good fortune has allowed me to speculate about the implications of coming out. I am painfully aware that most religions, especially Islam, are the complete antithesis of everything I value, and that it is necessary for ex-Muslims to stand together in critique of the insanely barbaric doctrines of Islam. This is a person born to a Muslim family in a Muslim country, in the closet as an atheist, saying these things about Islam. Okay, this is, is this person a bigot? Is this person an Islamophobe? Scrub the hard drive of your brain with these kinds of confessions if you feel any concern at all that critics of Islamic doctrine are lying about the nature of the doctrine. At the same time, I cannot help but wonder if doing this would be worth the personal costs of openly criticizing Islam, such as rejection and ostracism from my beloved family and friends. In the short flicker of consciousness that we are blessed with on this planet, could a person say she lived a good life if she was denied familial love throughout? Although it has its own challenges, in some respects it's easier for ex-Muslims who face violence and hatred from their families to start a new life once they have migrated to another country. But the majority of Muslims, such as myself, are stuck between two worlds. We do not want to leave everything behind, and we do not want our actions to hurt our family. But living a life against our core principles is mentally and spiritually taxing. Would you be willing to be ostracized from the people you love for the sake of the greater good? Should ex-Muslims, like us, delegate the task of critiquing religion to such people as Ali Rizvi and Sarah Hader, who are able to leave the religion with fewer repercussions? Or do you believe that the threat of fundamentalist Islam is so great that people should risk ostracism, violence, and even death to fight against it? 
Is it even possible to fully flourish as a human being while living your whole life under a pretense? And then she closes by saying, I apologize if these questions sound naive. Not at all. Uh, considering how many more, quote, serious problems within Islam we need to tackle. Um, well, they're not at all naive, and, uh, you know, arguably they're among the most serious questions. This is the issue. How do you transform the attitudes of hundreds of millions of people, you know, who are not jihadists, obviously, but who acquiesce and tacitly support or even actively support social norms that um, stifle freedom of speech and free thought and creativity and everything else, your right to value. And, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I just don't have an answer to that question in the specific case of any individual. I have, I have a general answer. And the general answer is, as you clearly know, I think free speech has to win. I think people have to come out of the closet. I think we have to criticize bad ideas and Kids should talk back to their parents, and teachers should intrusively educate their students to not believe what their parents uh, insist is true, if in fact it isn't. But in the case of any one person, you know, I can't say, yes, I think you should come out of the closet, and your life would be better for it, because you know, my remarks about lying and self-defense could well apply here. If you think your life will be destroyed, you know, violently or otherwise— by telling the truth, well, then the, the reason to keep the truth hidden by whatever means necessary is obvious, and I think it's obviously justified. And, I, and only, only you can decide what the risks are and, and what the costs are, in your case, of not being honest with your parents. And in my experience, you know, people from all denominations can find themselves in situations analogous to this one. There are Christians who are worried about losing everyone they love. I, I hear from husbands and wives who are married to a spouse with whom they have children, and they can't tell their spouse that, they, that they've lost their faith. And then now they're deciding how intolerable that is and whether, it's, whether they can live with bringing their children up to believe this thing they no longer believe, just to avoid having to deal with their spouse's reaction once he or she finds out that they no longer believe in God. And the same, of course, is true with children and their parents. But what is unique to the Muslim world, and again, the Muslim world is not just in the Middle East or in Muslim-majority countries. I'm talking about Muslim communities in the West. What is unique here is a credible concern about violence. Now, it sounds like this woman does not actually fear her family, which is great, although she fears losing them. She doesn't fear having them kill her. Uh, and again, I can't emphasize too often that that is the situation that so many Muslims are in. Muslim women and girls, in particular, who are worried about being murdered by their own family members if they talk honestly about what they believe to be true, about a holy book. It's almost impossible for many of us to understand that that is really going on in the world, but it is. So I'm sorry, I, you know, I, I, I want to thank you for writing to me. And again, you should know that there are many other people in precisely your situation. And I would encourage you to write to Sarah Hader and Ali Rizvi, who have a far more informed opinion on this topic than I ever could. And maybe they should set up a something analogous to the clergy project, where, where you can have anonymous an anonymous web forum 
of people who are ex-Muslims but are for one reason or another still in the closet. Um, maybe that exists. In any case, I, you know, I find these kinds of emails heartbreaking and they are in large measure why I keep talking about Islam. Uh, that and the intolerable affronts to free speech that we're all living with. It's interesting to think about what, what, what sort of response someone like Glenn Greenwald would or could give to an email like this. What's he going to say? Oh, don't you realize this? the same thing happens to new atheist kids who are worried about being murdered by their parents or ostracized? You know, the new atheists are just as fundamentalist as any religious group. Is he going to lay that down in this context? In any case, it's uh, I feel for you, and I certainly encourage you to get out of that, whatever country that is, where apostasy is a killing offense. Come to the West, surround yourself with secular people, and then you'll be in a different position to decide whether or not you want to tell your parents what you believe. Another question here from a, um, a woman who... Uh, Describes herself as a cognitive neuroscientist in Argentina, though the question is on the topic of uh, the ever-present topic of politics now. Um, she says, I'll simplify your arguments against the regressive left and summarize them as, quote, the left has missed the point so badly that they're basically responsible for smart and otherwise sensitive people like yourself to lean towards the right. Uh, and then she goes on to say, this argument has always troubled me, and I saw it epitomized in the recent presidential elections in Argentina, where I'm from. Isn't it intellectually and politically lazy to support right-wing ideas and policies just because the left has gotten it or most of it wrong? I get that you are a two-party system, but there surely must be some room for nuance. Don't you think that people in positions like yours could be could also be advocating a better left? Well, yes, thank you for the question. I think you've misunderstood my point on this topic. I, I do view myself as someone who's advocating for a, quote, better left. I'm liberal in virtually every relevant sense. And, uh, you know, so I don't, I don't know what to call myself because so many, quote, liberals are confused about the problem of global jihadism, that it's a, it's misleading to call myself a liberal in that context, but my views on the topic are not a result of increased sympathy with the political right. It's just I, I am worried about a time where, given a choice between the right or the left, when the left is this confused on this topic of really civilizational importance, and given a forced choice between the two, that even otherwise liberal people will be forced to choose the right. And uh, I see that potentially happening in Europe before the U.S., but I, I could see that happening in the U.S. as well. It's, it's not a matter of becoming more right-wing. It's a matter of, you know, the house is on fire, and the only people who seem aware that flames don't usually belong on the ceiling are members of the right. Okay, so then who are you going to trust to put out the fire? You've got one, at least one side is talking about fire more or less accurately and acknowledging that it shouldn't be where it currently is. The other side is is speaking pure delusion and in many cases reaching for a can of gasoline. That's the problem. If you have an emergency and only one side seems to be cognizant of it, well then that's the side you have to pick. And again, I don't think we're in that situation yet, but I could see us push there by a sufficiently large act of terrorism. 
And this goes back to the thing I said about Ben Carson. Again, Ben Carson is a religious idiot of the first order. And happily, his campaign now is foundering and we'll never hear from him again. But yes, I do view someone like Noam Chomsky on this issue as being suicidally out to lunch, right? His views about the total culpability of the West for the problem of jihadism, that is just a sinkhole morally and politically, that we have to avoid. We have to do anything we can to avoid going down that hole into masochism and this just supine effort to placate our enemies, no matter how diabolical they are. And we now have some truly diabolical enemies. And if ISIS videos can't convince you of that, well, then you are unreachable. ISIS videos aren't our propaganda right? This isn't us producing caricatures of the enemy. This is what the enemy is producing as its own outreach. Watch some of those videos and tell me that they're an expression of some sort of legitimate grievance against the West. Tell me that it's our job to create a safe space for these barbarians. Tell me that the term barbarian is excessive in this case. Go ahead and run that psychological experiment on yourself. Just don't do it before dinner. There's one question here about uh, the Black Lives Matter campaign and the so-called Ferguson effect in policing, uh, where the violent crime rate has gone up in several cities, possibly as a result of cops no longer policing as actively. Um, I guess I'll defer that to um, my interview with with Scotty Reitz. Again, he'll be the the right person to go down that particular rabbit hole with. One reader asks, how fast do you read? Actually, quite slowly. Occasionally, I'll skim something, but basically, I read everything like it's scripture. And I don't speed read. I read um, far too slowly. It's uh, inconvenient. Here's a question. I've heard many atheists talk about polygamy as a negative aspect of certain religions. And I agree wholly that it is an evil when forced on anybody. But ethical non-monogamy is something that many healthy, intelligent people engage in willingly, even without the influence of a religion. Is there anything inherently wrong with polygamy between three or more consenting adults? If so, what? And if not, why call it out as an example of evil instead of the religious imperative itself? Uh, I think I understand that last bit. Uh, Well, I don't think about polygamy as a problem very much. I, I think it is a problem in a religious context, whether it's a kind of modern cultic one like Mormonism or a traditional one, as you see in various Muslim contexts, it's a problem because it is synonymous with the lowered status of women. Uh, there's something coercive about it. There's something misogynistic about it. This is not a freely chosen arrangement on the part of the women, but it's certainly not the worst part of their lives in, in these cases either. Uh, or at least I wouldn't imagine it would be. And I I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with with non-monogamy. I just think it's most of the time unworkable, given the nature of the human mind. I think people suffer from this complication of their lives uh, intensely, for the most part. I haven't heard of it really working. Whenever I meet someone who claims to be in an open relationship, I see a, a virtual time bomb ticking over their heads. It just it just tends not to work out, but I, I don't I'm not at all judgmental about it on along ethical lines. As long as it doesn't involve deception, well that and people are consenting to be in these arrangements, well then 
you know, feel free to have a harem as far as I'm concerned, uh, man or woman. So um, I don't think it's a central concern either way, but it's in a religious context, it tends to be part and parcel of the degradation and control of women. Do you think there's a possibility, given advances in technology, you could have your stance changed on free will? I actually don't see how my view about free will could change. And if you're not aware of what I think about free will, um, I think it's even worse than an illusion. I think it's it, the illusion is itself an, an illusion, which is to say that we think we have a, an experience of free will, which we don't actually have when we pay close attention. And it makes no sense in third-person neurophysiological terms or physical terms or in any other terms. So it, it's, a, it's not an ordinary illusion. It's not like it's something's there and then you look more closely and it's gone. If you look closely, you'll find that it's never really quite there. And there's certainly no, there's no, as I said, there's no way the world, we could describe causality in the world so as to make sense of the conventional notion of free will. I don't see a space for it among our concepts about how causes operate. You know, we, we could define it differently, and that, that's fine. I mean, it's not fine. I don't think it's especially useful, but, but people do that, and then we can agree that that sort of free will might exist. Uh, but um, what most people mean, libertarian free will, I could have done otherwise in a circumstance. If you rolled back the movie of my life, I could have decided not to answer this question. That is a, um, a non-starter as far as I can tell. So I actually don't see what could conspire to make me change my view here. And that's not true of almost anything else. I could easily specify the terms under which I would believe that Jesus was the Son of God, or that uh, the Quran was the perfect word of God, or that uh, human beings are now going to live to be a thousand years old. I mean, there's all kinds of amazing things that could be demonstrated to me that would radically change my view of the world. Uh, and I can pretty easily come up with the conditions under which that change in view would occur. Through no free will of my own, I would just be helplessly led to believe something new. But I don't actually see how that can happen on the topic of free will. And I, I would say the same about the, the existence of the, the self, the, the ego that most people feel they have riding around behind their eyes, in their heads. Uh, that's just the, the other side of the coin of this free will issue. Is killing another human being always wrong, even in circumstances such as self-defense? Is there an ethics for killing? Um, yes, this is <laughs> this is someone who hasn't read my books. Um, yeah, I'll I'll defer this to um, my conversation with Jocko Willink, who will be well placed to talk about the ethics of killing. But um, the short answer is yes. I think it can be ethical. In fact, I think there are situations where you would be a moral monster for declining to kill someone in defense of yourself or, in particular, in defense of some other helpless person. And therefore, I think pacifism, while it is generally considered the most refined moral position uh, with respect to violence, I think is actually a, an abhorrent position when you look at the details. That's not to say that, that it's a cowardly one necessarily. There are very brave pacifists like Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr., but I think pacifism, as um, Orwell pointed out, only works in the presence of a sufficiently civilized enemy. And um, it's just a, uh, a guaranteed way to give the world over to the most violent 
and least scrupulous people. And why would we want to do that? Here's a question. I wonder why you don't use the example of child abuse by Catholic priests as being another case of religious doctrine, in this case, forced celibacy, having harmful repercussions in real life. To me, just like jihadism can be linked to certain Islamic doctrines, so can the widespread Catholic sex abuse cases. Further, society's unquestioning respect for religion enabled this for a long time. Even though there are countless examples of religious dogmatism causing harm, I thought this was a pretty good example and might help you to explain you are not unfairly targeting Islam, but highlighting the dangers of dogmatism and unquestioning respect and tolerance of religion above the rule of law. If you do not think this is the same, I would be interested to know why. Okay, well, you certainly uh, can be forgiven for not having read everything I've written, um, but I can just say I've done this. Uh, I wrote a book called Letter to a Christian Nation, which went after Christianity just full bore in a way that I've never quite gone after Islam, at least all in one place. It's true that I um, ignored the pedophile priest scandal for a while. I don't think I mentioned it in Letter to a Christian Nation, but at a certain point that stopped. I'll refer you to my essay, Bringing the Vatican to Justice, but I'll give you the, the first two paragraphs of that so you can get a sense of how I, I actually haven't ignored the link between doctrine and this problem. Although it's, it's I, I should say, it's a less direct link than the link between Islamic doctrines around jihad and the problem of jihad. Uh, you'll see what I mean. Bringing the Vatican to justice. I confess that as a critic of religion, I have paid too little attention to the sexual abuse scandal in the Catholic Church. Frankly, it always felt unsportsmanlike to shoot so large and languorous a fish in so tiny a barrel. This scandal was one of the most spectacular own goals in the history of religion, and there seemed to be no need to deride faith at its most vulnerable and self-abased. Even in retrospect, it's easy to understand the impulse to avert one's eyes. Just imagine a pious mother and father sending their beloved child to the church of a thousand hands for spiritual instruction, only to have him raped and terrified into silence by threats of hell. And then imagine this occurring to tens of thousands of children in our own time, and to children beyond reckoning for over a thousand years. The spectacle of faith so utterly misplaced and so fully betrayed is simply too depressing to think about. But there was always more to this phenomenon that should have compelled my attention. Consider the ludicrous ideology that made it possible. The Catholic Church has spent two millennia demonizing human sexuality to a degree unmatched by any other institution, declaring the most basic, healthy, mature, and consensual behaviors taboo, Indeed, this organization still opposes the use of contraception, preferring instead that the poorest people on earth be blessed with the largest families and the shortest lives. As a consequence of this hallowed and incorrigible stupidity, the Church has condemned generations of decent people to shame and hypocrisy, or to neolithic fecundity, poverty, and death by AIDS. Add to this inhumanity the artifice of cloistered celibacy, and now you have an institution, one of the wealthiest on earth, that preferentially attracts pederasts, pedophiles, and sexual sadists into its ranks, promotes them to positions of authority, and grants them privileged access to children. Finally, consider that vast numbers of children will be born out of wedlock and their unwed mothers vilified wherever church teaching holds sway, leading boys and girls by the thousands to be abandoned to church-run orphanages, only to be raped and terrorized by the clergy. Here, in this ghoulish machinery set whirling through the ages by the opposing winds of shame and sadism, 
we mortals can finally glimpse how strangely perfect are the ways of the Lord. So, um, uh, you know, I'll leave you to read the, the rest of it, but um, let me just plead innocent about um, ignoring this particular problem. On that happy note, I see I've been at it for a while here. Uh, I've bent your ear in uh, none too hopeful directions, mostly. Um, happy New Year, people. <laughs> <laughs>